Just as tech pros here. Today I wanted to uh, dive into grand jury and that whole process because obviously that's where it all begins when somebody is going to be faced with dealing with the uh, justice system. Charges are presented against that individual or against several individuals, depending on the case, to a grand jury. And I think that's one of the issues that the general public doesn't have a full understanding on and they don't grasp how easily it is to get that indictment. Unfortunately, when the defendants are brought into the courtroom, a lot of the times they're already behind the eight ball because the jury looks at it, which I guess would be human nature if you don't know any better. You look at it, well, if they're in here, there's a reason why they're in here. And a lot of time and evidence was put together to bring them here and to gain the grand jury indictment to actually get an acceptable indictment and to get the grand jury to sign off on it to indict this person or these individuals. <clears throat> and it's actually quite disturbing how easily it is to get an indictment. And again, through experience, through professional and personal experience with clients and with uh, people I am close to, I have witnessed firsthand how these individuals are indicted when there really isn't the type of evidence that one would think is needed to charge somebody with a crime. And I always remember the uh, quote where someone said, you can indict a ham sandwich. So I wanted to find out the genesis of that quote. And I was looking into it and I want to read something that lays the groundwork of why that was said and the meaning behind it and how it's actually a very accurate statement to make when you are describing how easily it is. Saul Wachtler, and I'm hoping I'm not butchering his name, but I believe it's Saul Wachtler, the former chief judge of New York State, coined the term in a January 1985 interview with the New York Daily News. In a bid to make prosecutors more accountable for their actions, Chief Judge Saul Wachtler has proposed that the state scrap the grand jury system of bringing criminal indictments. Wachtler, who became the state's top judge earlier this month, said district attorneys now have so much influence on grand juries that by and large they could get them to indict a ham sandwich. Now, if that doesn't say it, I don't know what does. And this was taken from Slate.com media outlet. And this was from 2014. Uh, They wrote about this and they made mention of this 1985 interview where this judge, this is a judge saying this now, where the district attorneys have so much influence they can indict a ham sandwich. And he was not kidding. Uh, There's several organizations, if you go on the internet and you research it, you could look into grand jury reform. And the reason why so many organizations are looking to reform the whole grand jury procedure is due to the fact that people are getting indicted with 
nonsense and based on nonsense and not powerful evidence. Two organizations that I want to spotlight who have a, a grand jury reform that they're trying to push through. One is the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they have a grand jury due reform act. And the summary of this act, I'm going to read as follows. The purpose of this act is to provide greater transparency, accountability, and fairness for the accused during grand jury proceedings. States that still permit grand jury proceedings ought to have certain safeguards to preserve an accused due process protections. Now it goes on, it's an in-depth outline of the Grand Jury Reform Act, and you could look, look that up based on the American Legislative Exchange Council, and you could put Grand Jury Due Reform Act to get some more details on it. But right there alone, that shows that those who take notice realize there's a problem and a change needs to be made. Another organization that is also focusing on the reform is the NACDL. And the NACDL is the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And they're also calling upon Congress to halt the dangerous erosion and abuse of the federal grand jury and enact the modest proposals outlined in their federal grand jury reform report and Bill of Rights. So they have also put together a reform policy that they're trying to get passed. And the reason for these things is educated people and people with the knowledge base on it realize that it is completely unjust. It is just not a justifiable practice. People are getting indicted based on poor evidence, poor explanation of evidence. It's completely one-sided. The the prosecutor, the district attorney, uh, the U.S. attorney, they're giving their account completely one-sided of what they feel has taken place without any recourse for the accused party to offer an explanation, defend themselves. Sometimes people do get subpoenaed to the grand jury and they could give a little basis, but it's not as if you have somebody fighting at that level or somebody trying to give opposition to the charges before they're brought against you at that level to avoid the indictment. And what I have noticed, particularly on this last case that I've mentioned in my prior podcast, the indictment was flawed from inception. There was a lot of errors in the indictment itself. And there was a lot of misstatements and false representations made to the grand jury that played out. And these aren't just things I'm saying out of guesswork. My firm, as I've explained prior, we... Once we are handed a case to assist with counsel and with the defense team, we really dive into all of the discovery. And in the discovery, you're able to see the affidavits and a lot of the information that was presented to the grand jury. Now, it's so important to really go through all that with a fine-tooth comb, and a lot of it is a ton of information. That's why 
a firm such as myself could really help or, or similar firms could really aid in that process. And what I mean by that is you just need somebody, um, which I'm sure all defense teams, you know, really have somebody going through it, combing it, examining it. But you have to take a detailed look at the information you're given, at that discovery you're given, and you have to go through the hard drives. Years ago, it was, it was a lot more paper. Now it's electronic. Everything's pretty much given on hard drives or on shared databases where counsel could download the uh, new discovery, the round, the different rounds of discovery you get, which is basically the evidence the government is going to present uh, their case with. So you have to really go through it. And a lot of the items, when we started extracting information and going through it, a lot of the affidavits that were signed by various agents didn't line up to what the discovery showed. For example, uh, there was a there was different affidavits, whereas, uh, without getting too specific, let's say a, a lot of it, when they're presented to the grand jury, they're relying on an agent or um, uh, a witness to say A, B, and C took place. This is what I heard. This is what this person said on the tape. This is the information we're going to present. Now, if that's not accurate, there's really no way of refuting that at that level. So they may make statements that I heard John Doe say on this recording that Bob Jones told him he was going to go rob somebody. Now, that's their statement. Now, when you go through the discovery and you start listening to the referenced audio and it doesn't match up, to what was sworn to under the grand jury, that's not what John Doe or Bob Jones said. And there's really no recourse for that at that level now. Now the indictment's already made. They indicted based, the the grand jury indicted based on believing that was accurate. And if it wasn't accurate, which happens, it doesn't matter. It's too late. You're indicted. You're already in the system now. You've already retained counsel. You've already... If you don't have money, you've already had to seek counsel. You've already been put through the ringer. You've already had the cuffs put on, put through the system. If it's a high-profile case, you've already had the headlines put out. Your family already's had to deal with the initial heartache of it all, the shock of it all. You're tied up now. If you don't make bail, your life is already starting to go downhill based on a false indictment based on something that a judge said could be obtained on a ham sandwich, on an inanimate object. He's saying they can indict an inanimate object because it's so easy to get. A one-sided process that could potentially strike that, not potentially, that does ruin somebody's lives. Because even if you win, you lose. Even if you go through all of that, and you win, you also lose. You went from money, aggravation, heartache, to prove something that you already know. You already knew you were innocent in some cases. And again, I'm not talking about, I know those in opposition to what I'm saying are going to try to say that I'm just saying the government's no good. This is, uh, this is uh, you know, the government's a fraud. 
Uh, everything they do is a setup. That That is not what I'm saying at all. And if you listen to all my podcasts, you'll know that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the ones who are not doing things properly. I'm talking about the ones who are not doing things legitimately and are not listening to the evidence and presenting it as it is. The ones that are twisting things intentionally to target somebody. The ones who are trying to make evidence that isn't there make it work for their agenda. That's what I'm talking about. There's many, uh, There are many honorable, fair people on both sides. On both sides. And on both sides, there's people who are not so honorable and so fair and so open-minded. That's just, that's in life. That's just how it goes. But in this system, when you sign up for these things and you control somebody's livelihood, I'm sorry, but you have to have the moral compass and the ethical background to be able to accomplish those things in a way where you have a clear conscience, where you know if you are going after somebody, somebody is a target, the charges you're bringing against them are legitimate. You cannot just look to put somebody away because you feel they may have uh, committed crimes at one time or another, or they may have broken the law. That's fine if you believe that, but then you have the responsibility to do the work, to put the time in and get them on the actual crimes they committed. Do not bring charges against somebody that don't exist just because you feel they may be guilty of something. In the justice system, you can't use that philosophy. Well, they may not be guilty of this, but they're guilty of something. So the ends justify the means. And I believe a lot of times that is the mindset that's being used. Some of these prosecutors are looking at it like the ends justify the means. So even though we know in our heart, because they're all intelligent people, they know when they have legitimate evidence, legitimate facts leading up to a guilty party. They know that. So if they're still going ahead with all of these items that are not accurate and all of these witnesses who are unreliable and evidence that doesn't really match up and they're using things and 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 twisting things and turning things to look at it from a certain angle just to fit that narrative. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. And they have the power to do that. And there's nothing a defendant can do when they're a subject or a target of an investigation. They could get thrown into that mix simply because it is so easy to get them indicted. If they shift focus to somebody and they want to get them indicted, they're going to get them indicted. They will say things, they will present things that may not be accurate, which I have witnessed firsthand, things that were completely inaccurate when you compared the actual discovery to the affidavits that were given and to the statements that were made to the grand jury. And then you compare that to the actual discovery. It doesn't line up, but it's too late. You could obviously make motions to dismiss based on that. You submit those. Those are very hard to accomplish. Any, anyone involved, especially in federal, in the federal system, realize it's very, very hard to get an indictment dismissed based on what take, took place in the grand jury because they don't even ask for the minutes. At least in the state, in New York, you're entitled to, the, to the, what took place in the grand jury. Federal, you're not. You can't even see what was exactly said. You can't, you can't pull that. Now, how does that make any sense? You can't even verify. 
You don't even know what took place. You don't know what lies took place. You don't know what stories were, were said at this grand jury to even see if it held any water, if it had any truth to it. You're not entitled to that. That's a, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. On a legal level, on a personal level, on a common sense level, something like that just should not be allowed. It just shouldn't even be in the cards. Those type of things need to be transparent. And the bills I mentioned earlier actually focus on that, that the problem is transparency. So many of these things aren't transparent. And, and nobody knows what goes on behind those closed doors. Nobody knows what's being stated. So let's say you have some agents who just don't like you. For some reason, they just do not like you. And they want to go there and they want to say all these things which aren't really accurate. They're half-truths, which... I touched on in a previous podcast, half-truths are very dangerous because you're giving somebody a little infusion of truth. So that makes the lie even more powerful because when you throw a little truth in there, you can't completely knock it out. And that kind of messes with somebody's mind because internally when they're trying to digest this information... And they're running all these things around in their head. They're saying, all right, well, this part's true, so then the other part must be true. And that's the danger of it. You know, a lot of damage could be done on the grand jury level. And it's scary that there's no oversight or secondary to look into that at this stage. You know, these are all things that could obviously be brought up at later stages that appeal, you know, unfortunately, if things go south and you get convicted and, and you have to go down that road. But just imagine that. You have to deal with it first. You have to get indicted. You have to go through all that trouble, all that financial burden, all that drama, all of that heartache, all of that emotional hurt that occurs and affects your family and affects your loved ones. And when you're you're passionate about what you do, it affects me when I'm seeing clients go through this. And I'm trying to help the defense team and I see their client struggling with this when you're dealing with somebody who's not guilty of the crimes that are put in front of them and you see them struggling with that and you're doing your best to help and as you're diving in and you're dissecting this material and you're pulling it all apart and you're starting to see more and more of what this defendant and what this client is telling you is accurate that they didn't do these things but yet here they are they're indicted and the famous saying I always hear people say who don't know better the general public unfortunately They'll, they'll always say, well, they can't do that. I'm sorry, but they can do that. You have to get that whole sentence out of your mind. Don't say they can't do it. The bottom line is if they want to do it, they're going to do it. And then you have to fight it. And the fight is tremendous. You're up against a government. You're up against a state. You're up against a very, very powerful opponent with endless money, endless time, endless resources. And that's what happens. They, they wear people down. They wear people down. And to, to have to go through that based on a one-sided argument. You know, it's like anything else in life. If you're only hearing one side of the story, you really can't make a determination. A friend of yours comes to you. He's complaining about another friend, as sometimes friends do. You know, they'll, they'll gossip about one another. And he's just giving you one side. And by the time that conversation's over, you're like, wow. You know, that guy's a real piece of garbage that he was telling me about. Now, a week goes by. After you already made your determination, after you already felt that 
the story you heard about the individual that your friend was complaining about. You sided with him and you were like, yeah, you're right. He did, he or she uh, really did mess up. Now a week goes by and you run into the other person. Now you get an entirely different account of what happened. Now what? Now your opinion kind of changes. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. I didn't have all these facts. That's not what I was told initially. Like the old saying goes, there's three sides to every story. His, hers, and the truth. When you're only getting one side, how, how is that fair to now have somebody fight for their life or fight for their rights based on a one-sided story? You're going to hand down an indictment. And again, it, it boils down to these jurors that they don't know these things. That they're so easily to sign off on these indictments. You know you're only hearing one side. You don't take any of that into account. You have to use common sense. We cannot be robots, people. We cannot be a society that just does whatever we're told, believes whatever's put in front of us, doesn't do any kind of work on our own, doesn't use our brain, doesn't try to outthink these things, doesn't try, does not try to analyze these things, just robots doing whatever we're told to do. You're being told, indict this person because we're telling you uh, these are the facts. Well, how do I know those are the facts? You're telling me they're the facts, but I'm not seeing the other side. And now that's it. You get the indictment, and now the person's in the system. Now he or she is going to struggle for a long time. Years. Sometimes it takes years to go to trial. And all kinds of money. And then if this person doesn't make bail, they're stuck inside with their family fighting. They're limited on, on the role they could play in their own defense. Because, you know, wherever they're kept, they're not making it easy for them to investigate their own case. And it's difficult. It's difficult for lawyers to meet with the client every day. It's difficult for the client to get access to a computer, to go through their discovery, to go through their material. They can't even work on their case if they didn't make bond or they didn't make bail. They have to rely on everybody. And I know me as a person, I like to be very hands-on. So if you have that type of defendant who who likes to be very hands-on and they can't, that in itself is torture. You know, you can't see these things. You want want to play a role and you can't because you didn't get bail. You were denied bail. And that whole bail process would be another good topic for another time because I see a lot of the times right away if you have a, a, a label or you have a stereotype, you don't get bail. But yet I'll see these terrorists who blow people up, who attack our country, attack innocent people. I'll see them get bail. I'll see certain acts of terrorism, they'll get bail. Maybe a high bail, but they still get bail. And you see a lot of these horrible, horrible individuals, like a a pedophile or a child molester, there's nothing lower in my mind, and they'll get bail. But yet, if you have a label, you're just not getting bail. You you uh, You have a certain label attached to you, or a certain stigma, and you've been in the headlines, and you've been in the papers... And everybody thinks you supposedly hold a position or you're supposedly a member of some kind of secret society. You're not going to get bail. The majority of the time. I'm not saying all the time, but the majority of the time. But that's a topic for another day. We'll, we'll dive into that because I have a lot of uh, examples of individuals who were accused of some horrendous, heinous acts and they made bail. And then you get somebody who's accused of 
RICO conspiracy, which a lot of people don't even know what that is, and they don't get bail. So I'll need that one explained to me. And we can, we're going to dive into that. But today, I just wanted to focus on this whole grand jury and really talk about how the general public has no idea how easy it is for somebody to get indicted and how right off the bat, you're fighting an uphill battle. You're fighting an uphill battle. That stereotype exists from the second you go in that courtroom. And and if you didn't make bail and you got to show up in your jail apparel and, and, you know, the jurors seeing you like that and the judges seeing you like that and people in the audience are seeing you like that and your family seeing you like that, it's, it's hard all around. It's hard all around. And you're innocent of charges. And a lot of these times you're innocent of charges. And I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. I mean, there is so many cases. Just look now, with, with DNA playing such a major impact role in our society based on technology, look at all of the people who got exonerated over that. Think about that. All of these innocent people spending years and years in jail suffering when they were innocent. And if it wasn't for the development of DNA, they'd still be in jail. Oh, and I apologize if you hear uh, feet running around in the background. I'm a dog fan, so... I have uh, my French bulldog at work with me. But anyway, that's really a problem. That's a a serious problem. And I'm hoping some of these bill reform, um, these, these reform bills that are being placed in front of Congress really get pushed through because that's a change that's needed. And if it's not changed, it's just going to get worse and worse. I mean, how don't you disclose the transcript of the grand jury proceedings? I just don't understand that. How can people read through the, the transcript? You have, on a federal level, you have to put in motions to try to even have the judge look at the grand jury. And they could deny it. If you just want the judge, if you don't even want to look at it. Say you're the defendant and you don't even want to look at it because you know there's no shot of, of the defense team getting it, but you want the judge to look at it, which is an in-camera review, which is where the judge would look at it. That's, that's a really long shot as well, which again, that makes no sense to me. You're not even asked to look at it. You just want the judge to review it so the judge could decide if this is a legitimate indictment or if, if one of the charges is legitimate. Say you want to, you know, you're hit with 10 different charges and you know five of them are wrong. Five of them are completely wrong and you just want to see how they even came to those conclusions. And you don't want to look at it yourself. You want the judge to do it, which is called in camera, where the judge will review it. That's even a long shot. It's very rare on a federal level for a judge to grant that. And I don't understand that. If you're the judge and you want to judge the case fairly, wouldn't you just want to make sure the defendant's put in front of you? You want to make certain that there is legitimacy to the claims being made against them, to the charges brought against them, just for your own peace of mind, just to make sure that you don't have somebody in your courtroom who is legitimately innocent of some of, if not all of the charges being brought against them. I would want to know that in good conscience. I wouldn't want to have to judge somebody that really shouldn't be in front of me in the first place. Who am I to make that call? You know, I I don't know how... Every judge on the bench doesn't look at it that way. Even if you don't want to give it to the defense, which I could understand if you don't want to give it to them. I mean, working for the defense, I don't want to understand. I really don't understand it. But for argument's sake, let's say I do understand it. 
the, the judge should look at it. Analyze it. Check it out compared to what was presented in the discovery. And if it doesn't line, line up, knock it out. The prosecution should have never brought it in the first place. If it doesn't line up to what's in the discovery and what they said they have doesn't turn out to be accurate, you have to knock it out. It's a false indictment. It's, it's not, it shouldn't be worth the paper it's written on. But instead, that doesn't happen. Instead, you got a battle now. you got a fight on your hands. And every step of the way you're fighting from motions, from uh, in-court appearances, from bail proceedings, trying to get bail. It's a constant battle every step of the way. And if you don't have a judge who is going to treat that fairly and try to make sure everybody's getting a fair trial, that could also be very dangerous. And that's going to be another topic. We're going to talk about the influence a judge can have on a courtroom because it is tremendous. They could limit a lot. They could limit questions being asked to witnesses. Uh, It depends on how they rule on the objections made by the defense, by the prosecution. They really, they could really hurt or help the situation. And in reality, it should be neither. It should just be fair. Just run it fairly. That's all. We don't, we don't, we're not asking for a judge or to, to be on our side. We're just asking to make sure everything goes fair for both sides. Each side should have an equal chance and, and should be able to play out their role in a fair manner and treat it fairly. So whatever is presented, we want, the defense wants to be able to respond to. Just in a fair manner, not one-sided on either way of the fence. That's really the basis of what I'm trying to get across here with these podcasts. I may have my own personal view on things, as everybody does. That's human nature. I don't straddle a fence. I have strong views on a lot of things. I have strong views on informants. But I take that out of the equation when you're you're in a professional atmosphere and I own a, a, a firm. You can't have your personal opinion mesh with that. Otherwise, you have no credibility. You have to look at things from an analytical standpoint and a logical standpoint, and you have to put your personal feelings aside. That's just how it goes. Otherwise, don't sign up for the job. Do something that, you know, you could uh, just react based on how you feel personally. And there's nothing wrong in that. That's just not the way I operate, you know, with the business I got involved in, especially the litigation firm, I can't do that because it's not fair. I, I can't do that. I can't instill my beliefs on people. That's that's not professional and that's not the way you do things to build credibility. You have to look at things at, you know, analytically and you have to say, if you have evidence that's bad, you have to acknowledge that. You have to address it. You have to say, okay, this, this is bad for us. As a defense team, how are we going to work on that? This is good for us. How are we going to promote that? You know, and really dive in. Yeah, And that's where... In my opinion, you need both book smarts and common sense. You need them both because some some individuals could be highly book smart, but they have no common sense. And if you're going to appeal to that jury, you got to have some common sense. But what's scary to me is it appears a lot of these jurors, at least the ones I've experienced, aren't using their common sense. They're being robots. They're believing everything the government's telling them, and they're not given the benefit of the doubt to at least grasp the concept that the burden's on the government. In episode five, I really harped on how it switched gears and how the 
nowadays, the trial seems to be the burdens on the defendant. Prove you're innocent. The government doesn't have to prove you're guilty. You've got to prove you're innocent, which, as we all know, isn't the case. So I'm just hoping things like this kind of format and me trying to break it down without coming across like uh, I'm ranting. I'm trying to do my best to, to, to remove my personal feelings, although I'm sure they come through. I've said it before. That's just the way it goes. But you have to look at things from an aspect of analyzing what is in front of you and what arguments are being made. And with the grand jury, if you see one side making that argument, that should have a great impact on your decision on whether to indict this person. And if somebody's just in front of you testifying, well, this is what was said, this is what it is, get the backup, hear the backup for it. And none of that plays out. You know, they'll just bring in different agents, different informants to say what they, uh, how they interpreted things or if the informants have an agenda. Say the informant doesn't like one of the defendants. Uh, the defendant screwed him over when they were dealing with each other. And the informant wants to get back at them. How is anybody going to know that? They could be a phenomenal liar and just make up a story just to get back at that person. You know, that's... People are spiteful. That's the reality of it. And that has played out. We had an informant on the stand say they hated the defendant. Hated him. If that is a motive to get somebody, I don't know what is. You hate somebody and now you, you, you happen to be testifying against them? Obviously, you're looking to get a little revenge. That's a problem. To me, that'd be a problem for credibility. You have such a passion for somebody. All these things should be weighed. And then when you start picking apart this discovery and you start seeing these things don't line up and you're asking yourself, how did they get this indictment in the first place? And you can't answer it. That's a problem. And that's, a lot of times that's what gives false hope when you're the defense team. And what I mean is you're seeing all these things, you're seeing all these lies and you're saying to yourself, okay, once we get in front of a jury, we're going to blow them out of the water. We're going to show our client had nothing to do with these things because their own discovery proves it. Their own discovery. This isn't us sending out investigators and getting our evidence and building our case. This is their discovery that disproves the charges against our client. That lifts you up. And then when that doesn't play out in the courtroom and the jurors just ignore that aspect of it, it's very disheartening. It really lets you down as to what is society doing. When they're signing up to be a juror, what are they doing? They're just wasting our time. They're not taking it seriously. They're not realizing that lives are on the line here. And it's so important to really fight your case from the second you do get it. The second you get it. And that's where, you know, that's one thing when I started getting involved in this, I realized the case doesn't begin when you get your trial dates. You know, the case begins the second you get that first round of discovery. You pull it apart. You rip it to shreds. You got audios on there? Get them transcribed. You got you got to get to work immediately. Because trial comes faster than you think and you got to have everything ready to go. And, and, and it's really, it's really upsetting when you do all that. And you take all those steps and you get a juror who blows that all off. You've done nothing but throw reasonable doubt at the case, and they just blow it off. 
And I believe a lot of it has to do with the initial bias of them seeing a defendant in front of them who was indicted. And they think that indictment had to be a strong indictment to bring them there in the first place. You know, people tend to think, well, the government's not going to waste their time going after this person. They're not going to waste all their resources unless they have the goods on them. So they have to be guilty. They had to get that indictment. They have to be here in front of me indicted based on really reliable sources and information. And that is 100% not the case. 100% not the case. And this isn't even coming from my mouth. As I quoted earlier, that's coming from a judge's mouth where he's telling you, you can indict a ham sandwich. Now you have that in the back of your head. You shouldn't even, that factor should not play into your decision-making skills while you're sitting on that jury for one second. Those defendants being indicted should not factor in at all. But it does. I'm telling you it does because I could see by the verdicts being given out. They're not listening to the facts. They're not listening to the instructions of reasonable doubt. All they're listening to is the instructions that hurt the defendant. They're not listening to the instructions. They're not grasping how monstrous the burden of proof has to be to find somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And if somebody's legitimately guilty, it's not that hard to reach that threshold. When you have the evidence, it's really not that hard. The problem is when somebody's innocent, it's hard to reach that threshold. And that's what people need to realize. If they're going so crazy and trying to throw so much mud against the wall to see what sticks and trying to confuse you, that should tell you alone you're dealing with an innocent person because a guilty person, they wouldn't need to do that. They would say, okay, here's the gun, here's the fingerprints, here's the gun residue, here's the DNA, whatever the case may be. I'm just using this as an example. Here's the knife. Here's this person on the phone saying, commit this crime. Here's this witness saying this person told him commit this crime. And here's the wiretap of him recording this person. You don't have all those things. When you don't have all those things, that means you have an innocent person and you're trying to grasp at straws to make the jury believe they're guilty by painting a picture. You know, by by painting a certain portrait the way you want it to appear. I mean, they'll make things sinister in the courtroom that aren't. In this last case, they made Christmas parties a sinister thing. People getting together for a Christmas party, which was held in a public place. They tried to insinuate, no, only members of this supposed secret society could be at this Christmas party, which was completely untrue because the place was open to the public. Yes, only people who were invited could be at the party, but isn't that any party? So if judges have a Christmas party, I could just walk in and hang out with everybody? Or if uh, FBI agents have a Christmas party, I could just walk in and sit down and be like, hey guys... I'm going to hang out at your party. I don't think so. It's just, that's just how life works. If you have a Christmas party, those you know get invited. Those who are friends get invited. Those people that you hang out with get invited. Why is that automatically sinister? Why is that automatically something wrong is taking place? Or, you know, they'll show pictures of wakes and funerals and people going to pay their respects. Right away, it's sinister. 
and they take these pictures, you know, the still shots for to make it very dramatic and appear like something's going on or they're talking about something. But they don't know. They could be talking about the Yankees. They could be talking about the poor person that just passed away that they're paying their respects to. They could be talking about how they feel bad for the family. But right away, they switch it and say, no, they're talking about uh, criminal activity. What if, what if the defense hired an investigator to go take pictures of wakes for people affecting those involved in law enforcement or the... How would those pictures look? What if we say, oh no, they're, they're planning something here. Wouldn't they look the same way? You take a still shot, you make it grainy, and you show uh, two law enforcement officers talking, and you could say, oh, they're talking about crimes. That you, you could make any narrative fit whatever story you want to tell if you have the right tools. And they have the right tools. But nobody looks at these things that way. They're taking everything they say as gospel. They're saying, oh, it's a Christmas party. It's uh, a bad Christmas party. There's criminal activity going on. Why are they the only ones invited? Rather than say to themselves, well, wait, when I have a Christmas party at my house, wouldn't I only invite my family and my friends? Wouldn't I only invite people I associate with? People off the street just can't come walk in. These are common sense things and they're being twisted to make it look like it's some kind of evidence. And I don't understand it. And they'll have these alleged experts on of you know to tell you no well at this christmas party only these uh people holding these ranks could go to this christmas party and it's just not true it doesn't match up to the evidence cuz you have all different types of people there it's it's similar to the story i was telling you where they were trying to make a social club this den of criminal activity and throughout the whole trial they were saying no women are allowed they paraded witness after witness that said no women were allowed at the end of the trial, defense showed the government's own surveillance footage. Their own surveillance footage, which they cut and pasted out the parts of the women going in and out of the club. There was like seven, six or seven women going in and out of the club, staying in there. Because it's a social club, it's a social gathering. People eat, they play pinochle and other card games that people play. And Continental and gin and... Uh, whatever other game, bingo, I don't know what games they're playing, but they're playing games and they're eating and they're watching TV. But the narrative was, no, only you have to be an alleged member of this criminal enterprise to get access to the club. Then when we disprove that, the jury doesn't even pay it no mind. How didn't the jury by themselves say they just lied to us? They just lied to us throughout this whole jury and every witness they brought in just lied to us about the purpose of this club. They all said it was closed to the public. It's not close to the public. Public was walking in and out. It meant nothing. And I don't blame the prosecutors for that part. I don't blame the judge for that part. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Whatever. I'll get into that in another later time. But the jurors don't see through that. You're going to get fooled by that. The same way you gave them the benefit of the doubt. How don't you give the the benefit of the doubt to the defendants, the people whose lives are on the line? You're ending people's lives when there is nothing but reasonable doubt. And it all goes back to that grand jury indictment that is so easy to get that now throws people in the system with no kind of oversight, no sense of fairness, and they're just thrown in and they're run through the mill 
and they're getting exhausted financially, emotionally, physically, all because it's flawed. The grand jury process is flawed and it needs to be fixed. And I really hope these organizations could accomplish that. It's been going on for a long time and no changes have been made. And I get jaded sometimes with things like that because it just doesn't seem like it does change. So I'm hoping the little part I could do is just educate potential jurors because the damage could be done as much as they want. But if we have smart jurors and we have jurors who are going to listen to common sense and give people a fair shot, that's the only chance innocent defendants have of being found innocent and proving their case. The jurors really still do hold the power. They just can't get influenced. That's the problem. They have to make sure they don't buy into the false narrative. And that's uh, really it for today. I think we uh, exhausted the whole grand jury aspect of things. And I thank everyone for tuning in. And as always, I thank uh, Rich and I thank Shattered for their support on their channel, Ruckus Radio. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. Actually, before I forget, I've been getting a lot of emails from uh, people. My office has been forwarding them to me. And I tell them, you know, to put, if you want to email uh, about a potential topic or even maybe tell your story, just put podcast in the topic, send it to info at justicetechpros.com, and then my organization will kick it over to me. But I, I may start doing that. I may do it because some of them, you know, I want to try to see if there's any way I could give somebody a platform. You know, some of these people, they really went through some hard times. So if they have the opportunity to call in and I'll just let them tell their story, it could possibly be an interesting segment. You know, you could just see how it really affects people one-on-one. So that's going to be something down the road. I just got to figure out how I'm going to incorporate that. But I'm definitely going to do that. So if you would like that to happen, if you would want your story to be discussed, please just drop us an email. And then somebody will reach out and coordinate that. Again, thank you for tuning in.